Welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville and Al Hunt. We want to wish everybody a happy new year and ask you to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. James, the political season is here, and our guest has special insights. He's Professor Michael McDonald of the University of Florida and the foremost expert on voting and voting turnout in America. Last time, 2016, only a little over 55% of eligible voters turned out. And since the 18-year-olds were given the right to vote, there's been a generally a, a steady decline. And even before that, the last time the percentage of voter turnout topped 65 percent was 1908 when even Carvel and Hunt uh, weren't following that election. So, um, Michael, first of all, thank you for joining us. And let's start. What's it going to look like this November, do you think? Yeah, well, great to be with you in in the new year. And uh, so thanks for having me on. And, um, you know, I think we're still looking at an exceptional turnout rate election. We just got some new numbers um, just this morning um, about uh, small donor activity uh, to the campaigns. And we're seeing eye-popping numbers in the number of people who are giving um, just small amounts of money to candidates. Now, of course, the campaigns have changed their strategies on doing fundraising to small donors and other things. But small donor activity would be one among many indicators that we would be looking at for uh to read the tea leaves on what may be happening in 2020. Uh, we can see survey data where interest is running like it's in October of 2020, not January. Uh, we can see high turnout rates in the midterm elections and, and other special and uh, general elections in 2019. So just every indicator just seems to be hitting at full um, power at the moment to suggest that we're gonna have a very exceptional turnout rate in uh, November, 2020. What's exceptional mean, Michael? Uh, over 60? Uh, could we get as high as 65 percent in 1908? Well, we were over 60 percent in 2016 among those who were eligible to vote. Now, the voting age population was a lower number, that uh, 55 uh, percent. Yeah, well, let's so. keep apples to apples. Yeah, so and compare it to yeah, the- and that's what I do. I, I calculate the turnout rates for those who are eligible to vote, not the voting age population, and um, and. I've got a time series that goes all the way back to the country's founding, so the first presidential elections in 1790. And um, uh, and so uh, looking at those numbers and, and looking at the apples to apples comparisons, um, uh, yeah, I think it's possible we can go over 65%. Uh, it, it's just hard to predict because this is out of sample behavior from a, um, you know, math standpoint. And uh, it's always hard to predict uh, what's going to happen when you don't have a good... But it could go over 65%, which would be stunning. And let me turn to James, but first to ask you, uh, just just briefly, does it favor at this stage as you look at it, one party or the other? Again, that's a really hard question to answer. Um, I, and I could go into the weeds, but the high level view is, um, you know, it looks like we could be on balance if there's a pool of voters, both who would be Trump supporters and who would be supporters of the Democratic nominee. And either they have a very similar size to these pools of people who didn't vote. And so um, it's going to come down to which group is, uh, which party is going to be able to more activate their voters and both are going to be activated. And so it's just going to be a matter of which one's going to 
be activated more. Um, and so I, I, I don't, it's really hard to tell at this point which party is going to be benefited by having higher turnout. And then you have to look even below the, the national numbers and you have to start looking at the states and, and thinking about, well, what's going on with the states and where are these, uh, the potential for uh, activating certain types of voters within the states. So it's a very complicated question that you're asking here. James. So uh, first of all, welcome, uh, Dr. McDonald. And the choice of you as, as our first guest of this year was intentional. And intentional to the extent that we believe that voter, the levels of voter engagement, the levels of voter turnout are the dominant story entering American politics in 2020. Uh, I want to ask you, before we look forward to 2020, let's try to put 2018 in perspective and just how high was that turnout and how, how, how were the levels of engagement and does that, what does that say pushing forward? Yeah, 2018 was highly unusual. Um, we had a turnout rate over uh, 50% of those eligible in the midterm election. Now, you know, in comparative perspective, you look at other countries, that's no, not a great number. Um, but in American politics, that is a very uh, unusual number. You'd have to go all the way back to 1914 to have a turnout rate that was over 50%. Uh, so that was a hundred year high turnout rate for a midterm election in, in 2018. And it, again, it's just another one of these indicators why we think something special is going on with voter engagement right now in the country. Okay, I hate to do this math turning around in different numbers of 65 of eligible, of, of registered, but let's try another way to, to look at this. I, is it, I think 136 million voted in 2016. Is that ballpark right? Uh, a little bit less, but yeah, it's it, it was over 130 million. Okay, so what is the range that you're looking at in, in terms of raw numbers in 2020? You know, I haven't done those calculations yet, um, okay. but uh, if we uh, look at the numbers, I, I think we'd be looking around 160 million or so. Um, Jesus. Yeah. All right. That, that's a, in, in, and I'm going to turn back over to Al, but there's no reason that we wouldn't expect that we're going to have astronomical levels of turnout during the Democratic primaries and caucuses, is there? Oh, I think we're going to start seeing it first in the primaries. Uh, so um, that's going to be our early indications. Uh, what happens in Iowa, uh, the levels of engagement there at the caucuses, are we seeing huge lines? Are we seeing delays? Uh, um, are we seeing people being turned away because they can't get into some of the, the um, caucus locations because they're just overcrowded? That Those are going to be our very, very earliest indicators that uh, uh, we're seeing high levels of engagement. And it it's likely going to also happen I, uh, on the Republican side, too, I think, because there are going to be a lot of Republicans who are just going to show up um, either to vote or to show up to a caucus just simply because they want to uh, express their support for Trump, even if he's the only candidate on the ballot in that particular state. It's going to be interesting to see what the turnout is just to come out and say, I support Trump. That's a, that's a It'd be a very fun number to watch as we can as we go forward. And thank you for that tip because we're going to look at that. Yeah, yeah, it 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 will be. And Michael, um, I mean, this this expected high turnout. Even looking back to what happened in in 2018, most of the credit of that probably goes to Donald Trump, doesn't it? Both for and against. I mean, he has been the energizer on both sides. Yeah, we saw turnout 
go up in just about every state from 2014 to 2018. And um, and I say just about every state, the, the ones that may have missed just by a slight, like a tenth of a percentage point, um, you know, those are just small misses. So we saw levels of engagement go up everywhere. And yeah, there were some more competition in some states, but we actually saw decreasing levels of competition in some states as well because of timing of which um, U.S. Senate elections are on the ballot, whether or not the state actually has um, statewide elections for the state offices in the midterm election years. Um, so like in North Carolina, actually saw um, a higher level of turnout than 2014, despite having no U.S. Senate election, and they don't have their state governor's elections on uh, midterm years. Oh, so um, what the heck can explain that? Ah. <laughs> that you would have higher turnout um, despite not having a marquee statewide election on the ballot. Uh, and the only explanation is Trump. It's the only thing that could explain this. Yeah, yeah. I think Louisiana is kind of a little bit of the same case. It happened to Louisiana too, yeah. Um, so it was, it's just incredible that you see this across the country. There were some counties in 2018 in places like Montana that had higher turnout than in the 2016 presidential election. That's just insane. We don't that you don't see higher turnout from a presidential to a midterm election. That just doesn't happen. Except it did happen in 2018. Let me, let me go back to your answer a few minutes ago. You know, I, I can clearly understand that there are a number of non-college educated white males who did not vote last time who are likely to be energized by Trump this time. Sam Manny's doing a great job. Let's go out there. It, it just, this is as a total amateur, it strikes me that, yeah, that's a, that's a good-sized group, but a much larger group would be young voters that didn't vote last time, Latinos that didn't vote last time, maybe to a limited extent. Yeah, African-Americans who didn't vote last time. So I guess what I'm asking you, and, and, and tell me why this is wrong, that if both sides do a great job, it has to tilt in the Democrats' favor. Well, I've run the numbers. Um, uh, New York Times has run the numbers. Uh, 538's run the numbers. We've all run the numbers on this. The, there's about an equal size group of um, those low education whites. And I don't mean that in any derogatory sense. Um, I just describing demographically who they are uh, and uh, looking at um, those other groups, the younger people, um, higher uh, education people, but you know they vote at higher rates anyways, but poor people, persons of color. When you look at those two groups, um, we still are... Um, you know, whites are still the largest group within the country. And so um, uh, those tend to balance out with one another. And, uh, and, and especially if you go to some of these places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, um, uh, if anything, the numbers are tilted a little bit more into the um, Trump's favor about um, his potential pool of um, activating some folks. Now, at the same time, we are seeing these changes to our country that despite the best efforts to to you know put up walls and other things um uh, they're just baked into the numbers in terms of births and deaths and and the fact that white people don't have babies the same way that other groups do um and uh the um so we're seeing a changing demographic profile of the country and um and so there are places 
actually beyond those three, uh, um, the Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and, and Michigan, like places like Arizona and Georgia are actually moving faster uh, demographically. And, you know, we could talk about Texas, I, you know, maybe Texas, but Wait, when, when you when you say when you say Michael moving faster demographically, you mean moving faster in that in those cases in the Democrats' favor. Correct. Yeah. When you get below the national level, you start looking down at the states, and and things become even um, more complicated because there different regions of the country are moving different directions in different ways um, that than what the national numbers are. James, you've been fascinated by Texas for a while, so pick up on that with the professor. Oh, I am. And I, I, the only people that don't believe that the Democrats have a chance to win Texas in 2020 are the people who are not Republicans. If you listen to the Texas Republicans, they are scared to death. Uh, you know, and, and the, the sort of conventional Democratic view is we're probably four years away. I mean, I, we're definitely going to be competitive in Texas in 2020. I mean, highly, highly competitive. Yeah, you know, I, I an, an interesting anecdote here is about a month ago, I got a call from the data people from the Texas Republican Party, and they were very concerned about the quality of data that they're getting from the Data Trust, which is the, um, the Republicans' data organization. And they were trying to do voter regist- registration drives and mobilization drives into the the people who aren't currently registered to vote and they were getting back basically crap and and when they went sent people out and they wanted they were asking me how do we improve our voter targeting efforts and i you know my first reaction is i can't believe you're asking me uh, these sorts of questions i tried to give them as good advice as i could because i want people to be engaged i don't care which party they are um but still um i think it it's very telling that here we have the Republican Party of Texas very worried about registering new voters. <laughs> right. They're very, they're, the, the Republicans are very upfront about the trouble that they have in Texas. The Democrats, at least the Democratic high-end community, loves to put, oh, no, James, that's, that's 2024. No, it's not. I don't know. If, again, it, the other place to look is Georgia. Brian Kemp is moving to the left as fast as he can. And, and so, Mike, the, the, we talk about overall vote, you know, 160 million, and that's what you study, and, and you do it better and with more credibility and authority than anybody else. You look at overall vote. It, I'm a political consultant. We, we tend to look a lot at share. And, you know, of course, you always want a, a Democratic demographic to overperform at share. And I'm specifically thinking of African-Americans. And I'm looking at the off-year election in Alabama where the, the, for the Doug Jones, now this was historic and it was Roy Moore, was breathtaking. They got like a 31, I mean, it wasn't high. It was breathtaking high. I, I look at Louisiana in 2019 where in, in a high turnout runoff, it was 31 contribution in Louisiana, which I don't want to call that breathtaking high, but it's pretty damn high. And then I, I see this poll that looks pretty good that, you know, just polls African-Americans and it shows what you would expect, some, some really stellar levels of, of interest here. Now, when I, if I look at North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, Pennsylvania, you know, even 
you know, Michigan for sure, maybe to some extent. Uh, if, if you get an enhanced African-American turnout, you're going to do pretty well in some of these places. And I don't think that's outside the realm of, of possibility to expect that we might get a little bit more like an Obama 08 African-American shared in, say, a Hillary 16. Well, I agree with you. Uh, African-American turnout did dip a little bit after Obama left the scene in 2012 and, you know, in the 2016 election. But, um, uh, you know, comparing 2012 to 2016, but it didn't really go back down to the same lower levels that it was before Obama hit the scene. And so um, there's continuing levels of engagement that we're seeing among um, voters. There's uh, um, there's a lot of research that says once you vote once, you're much more likely to vote again. And so what we're seeing here is that I think partially is that people have been engaged. They've been activated under Obama and they're continuing to be activated. They've registered to vote. They now know where their polling location is. They can navigate the system. Politics isn't so mysterious to them anymore. And so um, that leads to higher levels of engagement. And I think that we're seeing that with African-Americans, but also lots of other groups, too, that um, don't traditionally vote. Well, let's let's folk. We've talked about Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan. Let let's talk about your home state or where you reside now, Florida, because every close election uh, it ends up uh, that Florida is, is is key. It would it would seem to me that in twenty twenty, Florida is a must win, uh, probably for Donald Trump. But tell us, give us the dynamics in Florida about this huge turnout if it occurs. Well, Florida's. Um much more, I think, like the country as a whole than it is um, uh, any individual state. And I know that a lot of pundits look back to the 2018 midterm election and say, well, the Democrats lost for very narrow margins, um, the governor's election and the U.S. Senate election. So therefore, if Democrats are doing well elsewhere, it means that Florida is no longer a battleground state. And I think that's just a bunch of bunk um, because uh Look, um, we've got a changing demographic profile, just like every other part of the country. We've also got a large influx of retirees, um, and they're coming from all parts of the country. Some people said, well, they're shifting from the Northeast to the Midwest. Yeah, there's not any evidence of that happening either. They're, people just come to Florida to retire. Um, and uh, and so it's this the changing demographic profile is offset by the influx of um, of retirees into the state, and uh, it's another one of these sort of balancing acts. And I I, I don't think that Florida is lost to the Democrats. Um, I, I think it's going to be a very closely contested state. And there's a reason why Donald Trump moved uh, to Florida and says his residence is now in Florida. They see this as a must-win state. If if the Republicans don't win Florida, then they don't win the presidency. I mean, that's that's just end game for the Democrats. So, right. And how, how stupid are some Democrats? We lose a Senate race in 2018 by 10,000 votes, and we're going to write the state off as being hopelessly Republican. I, I mean, it's it, it, it's so colossally dumb. Uh, I, I the or the commentary that Florida has moved away from. I mean, it's certainly been a disappointment for Democrats in, in any number of times. They've been high, higher hopes and then will fulfill. But it, it it's not like there's a real big difference either. It's not like you can't win if you run a smart campaign. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you, Dr. McDonald. I, I don't buy this Florida's 
irredeemably red. Yeah. So, you know, and what um, Scott and um, DeSantis did very well is they courted the Puerto Rican community in uh, in Florida. And um, and there was some drop off among some of the African-American communities, too, which is kind of surprising with Gillum being on the ballot. But um, I, I don't know. There's just something going on there with, with Gillen that I don't quite understand. If the Democrats don't compete somewhat in North Florida, because when I went and looked at it and I looked at those counties in, in, in North Florida, God, it was it was like 85-15. I, I mean, it, they just got slaughtered. And they have to they have to cut those margins. I, and that's just not applicable to Florida. That's applicable in Wisconsin or, or Pennsylvania or anywhere. They cannot continue to to lose these rural white voters like Republicans lose African-American voters. With some places, we're approaching that kind of defeat. And I I, I think you got to try to be a little more competitive there. Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, redistricting is another thing that I really love. And if you look at Texas, actually, uh, Beto O'Rourke won a majority of the state house districts. Um, because of the lopsided margins that, uh, um, well, uh, that were being redistricting yeah, they thought they were redistricting Republicans. Yeah, I mean it was a great story, <laughs> and they, they actually redistricted Democrats. And I got Democrats telling me that we shouldn't we shouldn't try to win Texas, and I'm like, are y'all crazy? Well, I, I think that this maybe not Texas, you know, statewide, but certainly the state house is in play. Because and that could be really, really important. If the Democrats could gain control of the Texas State House, that would put a break on a partisan gerrymander of the congressional and state legislative districts. And then that means that the Democrats will be very much better positioned for the next decade um, in Texas. So at the very least, and I know smart people are looking at this on the Democratic side, they're at least looking at the state house. And then, you know, if they're going to invest that money in the state house races, you know, why not invest a little bit in the presidential election, too? Right, let me ask you one. I, I, I can see where there could be a larger African, this is on the Democratic side, a larger African-American turnout, uh, maybe even with a lot of work, uh, a, a, a really improved Latino turnout. We always talk about young voters, though, Michael. What reason is there to think that they're going to really turn out much more than they have before? Well, I mean, I... As much as I would love to see higher turnout among young people, um, no one has solved this problem where younger people vote at lower rates than older people. It's just such a solid truism that um, if anyone could solve this problem, that would change American politics in a very fundamental way. Uh, And what we've got here also is um, that is you know a little bit concerning about what's happening with the country uh, if you're a democrat is that at the same time um the baby boomers are actually reaching their peak turnout years just as they're um, they're cresting uh you know in that retirement age um and you could see uh so as the country's become more diversified ironically uh, and the electorates become more diversified we can see that happening um, ironically, the electorate's also becoming older at the same time. It doesn't make any sense unless you understand this this odd dynamic that's happening with um, the turnout rates, differential turnout rates between older and younger people. 
Um, now, younger people did vote at higher rates in 2018 than they did in 2014. Um, they generally will show up to higher rates in a presidential election. Um, so uh, there's that that's going on. But to really change things, we need to see these turnout rates go up like 15 percentage points, not you know, five percentage points or something like that uh, com in comparison to past elections. And and so that's the challenge. And I know there are a lot of good groups that are out there trying to do the voter mobilization, um, but they by and large, they target young people on college campuses. That's easy. That's the easy stuff. You got all the kids together. Uh, you know, I yeah, I can set up a booth. I can register plenty of kids on at the University of Florida campus. Oh. That's not the hard thing. The hard thing, how do you go out into the community identify poor people, younger people, transients, the renters who um, are working several jobs, they're just trying to make ends meet. How do you get them engaged and involved? And nobody knows the answer. I, I could not agree with you more. In 92, so to come in, the, the youth coordinators up, you know, the young, whatever, the Democrats or college, you know, they got meetings set up at Princeton and they had a meeting set up at you know, Florida State, and they got a meeting set up at University of Oregon. I said, man, get out of there and go to Dade County Community College. Uh, uh, go where these low-income workers are. I mean, when, when we think of young people, not not you, but but if you talk to some of your colleagues or you talk to people, you're right, they think of kids that go to University of Florida. Well, that's, that's unrepresentative, uh, and those kids are going to probably vote anyway. I mean, they probably have pretty good turnout. I mean, the, the higher you go up the education scale, e even if you're young, the more likely you are to vote. But but the point is well taken, and it's one that the Democrats would, and, and the, the people that are trying to activate young people should take to heart. Go where the young people really are and where you can really make a difference. You're not going to make a difference at Princeton. They're already going to vote. There are groups that understand that. It's just that nobody's figuring out how to solve this. And by the way, I'm not young. I, I have my ARP card. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I wish I was younger. You fit very well in this program, uh, uh, then, Michael. Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, you know, I want to just second what James said to start with. Uh, it was intentional to have you as our first guest of this year. Uh, I think what you're talking about is the most important uh, really the most important consideration uh, in 2020. How big is that turnout going to be and which side is going to turn out those voters? And we can't thank you enough uh, for right. We hope you us. come back. You Yes, we want a commitment to come back. Yeah, I want a commitment to, to, to come back because I, I think this story is going to do nothing but get bigger. Uh, Matt, now, James, you know, I, I the last time I was on, you invited me to a, a LSU game when Florida was going to be there. You didn't follow through on it. Oh. Come on. You were oh supposed to God. hook me up. Um, yeah, I'll come you guys have had a great year. Yeah, we have. Uh, so, we have. Michael, you yeah. we have, and we got a big you one coming up. And Florida, well, Florida had, Florida had a good win. Oh, you're Virginia trying to change North the subject, James. Want to play. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, but I'd be happy to come back on. Thank you. We're, and I, I don't know where they, you. well, you're, you're coming back on. And the next time Florida plays in Baton Rouge, uh, you, you, you have absolutely a guarantee that Carvo will deliver, right? James? I, I, will, I will deliver. I will deliver. I, but don't, right now I'm so fired up about January 13th. I, I can't move, man. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Michael, you have been a terrific guest. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to you. And we'll, we look forward to visiting you again this year, okay? All right. Well, Happy New Year to you as well. Have a good year. Thank you, Prof. Boy, James, that Michael McDonald uh, is really good. 
Um, let's us let's us look at the Democratic field now, at least the top five contenders, and look at where they were a year ago and where they are today. What kind of a grade we'd give them uh, for 2019? I'll start with Joe Biden, and I'll give him a B plus, a B plus because he's made lots of mistakes. He's really looked awful at times. Terrible debates up until the last one. Uh, a campaign team that didn't quite uh, seem to have its act together for a while. But you know, he has staying power. He was the leader a year ago. He's the leader today. And so I'd give him a healthy B plus uh, because a couple months ago, I thought I'd be down to a C or D now. And if he wins, if he finishes in the money in Iowa, New Hampshire, I may even elevate that grade. Yeah, I guess I'm a little bit more on the B side. I mean, it, it, he's shown some resiliency. Uh, he's had some moments. His fundraising is not all that great. His organization is not all that great. I mean, this is good for him. I mean, if I was grading him on expectations, I'd probably give him an A. But if I look at the overall thing, B plus it might be a little bit high. I might give it a B. Well, I'll tell you who I'd give an A, A minus to Bernie Sanders. Uh, And that, and I'm not a big fan, as you know, but Bernie Sanders is another guy who's held up. Uh, That base is really, really solid. His fundraising is off the charts. I think $34.5 million in the final quarter. And those Bernie people, they ain't going to go away. And I think uh, for a guy who had a heart attack and he's 78 years old, uh, I think he deserves at least an A- minus this year. You know, I'm kind of with you on that. I'm I'm worried to death about Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders' effect in the general election. Understand, Bernie Sanders is not, nor are many people voting for him, a Democrat. And there are many people over there who believe that that, that chaos theory, that that four more years of Trump would be better than having four years of a corporatist neoliberal or whatever they they think, and that this will accelerate the revolution. Uh, The big number, and the thing that really worries me about Bernie, is the number 15. Because that's the number it takes to qualify for proportional representation. And what this tells me is he has the financial resources to go all the way to Milwaukee. And he's got enough energy where he's he's going to get 15% in a lot of places. And I don't think Bernie can get half the delegates. But there's a, a not remote chance that, that he controls the destiny of the Democratic Party in July of 2020. It's a scary thought. Uh, it is. Of, it, it, you gotta, you gotta say it's real. Yeah, you do. What kind of grade would you give uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren? I, I, honestly, a, a C plus. And and, and it, it, I want, I thought her coming out <clears throat> at her bio in a corruption critique was so effective, and she allowed herself to get sucked into the Medicare for All debate that was the story in the New York Times today. I thought it was well-written. I, I, I was just tickled about the activist in Atlantic, Iowa, who's having meetings at a house with physicians to explain Senator Warren's position. I mean, first of all, it shows you how hard people are working out there. And secondly, a reporter can't find a person that doesn't have an opinion on it. In in a very, when you read the story, everybody has a very detailed opinion. It has clearly hurt her. It didn't get anything. Bernie's gotten stronger. Uh, And now she doesn't talk about it. And now she doesn't talk about it. It, It's just one of these 
colossal mistakes in politics. And, you know, she's got a lot of energy. She's got the right critique. She's got to, she's trying desperately to get back to her bio and her corruption critique of which two started with a plus. She started with an a plus campaign message and an a plus bio. And she's allowed herself to be defined by Bernie Sanders. And that's that, that you, you can't be happy about that. I'd C minus. See, my boy, I mean, she's, she's, she's declined even the course of the last couple of minutes. I was going to. Yeah, yeah, the more I think about it, the, the, <laughs> the worse it. And the reason is, is that she had the highest SAT score in the class. Right. She came in the best. That's, that's for sure. Right? I, I, I was grading her to Joe Biden. I, I, I know she, I, her resume, even though Biden's impressive, and don't get me wrong, in a political sense, but hers at for the moment for the times was almost designed to be a president, almost designed to be it. I was going to be more charitable and give her a C plus, but we can average out to a C. I'll tell you, right. the one guy who gets an A, Pete Buttigieg. If you look at Pete Buttigieg today versus a year ago, nobody thought, I mean, Beto O'Rourke was the flavor of the year a year ago. Uh, hardly anyone was talking about Pete Buttigieg, didn't measure up in the polls. I don't know if he has staying power or not, but you look at him in Iowa, New Hampshire right now, uh, you look, the fundraising numbers, not quite at Bernie's level, but higher than almost anybody else. Uh, and it remains to be seen what will happen next month. But if you look, if you're going to grade someone in 2019, I think you have to give Mayor Pete an A. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody can. There's, there's no doubt about that. And, and the thing that he's done has accomplished, and it, I think it's pretty hard, is he just screams different. I mean, his youth, his looks, his sexual orientation, his last name. The guy just stands out. I mean, he just he he looks new, different, fresh, and that's the kind of word first words that come to mind. Now, where he's going to face it is, you know, it was Mayor South Bend is when we had him on the, the old podcast, and they're going to bring strong heat on that, and that is a very legitimate critique. That is a very legitimate thing to force a discussion on. That is not dirty politics. That that's not you know trying to destroy the, the Democratic Party, anything else. Because I'm I, I, I kind of like him too, and I want to know more about the, the experience gap. And he's going to have to really bring his game up for that. Going well, they forward. better do that now because if they don't, and he ends up getting the nomination, you, you sure as hell can bet the Republicans will do it. Yep. No, they no, no way he's going to get the nomination without going through this gauntlet. Right. I, that, that, right. That, that, right. That's going to happen. I'm not. No well, chance. No, I I agree with everything you just checked off. I had one more thing. I was uh, out there uh, in my populace with the people in Vail, Colorado, last week. And I uh, was talking to, uh, you know, a big Wall Street guy who had had, was one of a small group that had dinner with Buttigieg about six or eight months ago. Uh, and, you know, those that's not where the country's going to go. The Democratic Party's going to go, that group. But he said, God damn, is he smart. Uh, and he is smart. And his, you know, we'll have to see how he weathers. But this is a, again, I keep, you know, I had, I had people who were supposed to be knowledgeable and been involved in campaigns a year ago who would say, man, Beto, is uh is is the guy this is this is just what we need young fresh different new well uh mayor pete became the beto uh, and look, and he, what i give him an a plus o is courage baby he just i mean you really with that name and being yeah. mayor south bend you're really gonna step out there and do this yeah i'm gonna 
Yeah. And look what yeah. he did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, you can't give him anything but an A now. But but I got to tell you, the the second half of the course is going to be is going to be a lot harder than the first half. I know there are a lot of differences, but it does remind me somewhat of Jimmy Carter, 1975. Uh, you know, for all the differences, uh, it was uh, considered it was a lot of courage, a lot of chutzpah. All right, one more I want to ask you about, uh, and that is Michael Bloomberg. Well, as you know, I think I've even mentioned it here. I've been very big that Bloomberg has a huge China issue. In, in that, that I mean that his business, although it's, it's a small part, and his answers on China have not been the, the very impressive. Well, let it go at that. Uh, I'm getting a lot of people saying, oh, no, they don't care about that. Look at Trump. It's a little bit different on the Democratic side. And look, China, they cheat. <laughs> they just do. And just because Trump went about it like a like an idiot and a clown with no plan, and the Chinese literally ate his lunch with, you know, I don't know if this is an anti-Asiatic thing to say, but I guess it's not. But I mean, they ate his lunch with with, with their chopsticks <laughs> for sure. And he, uh, but but don't he's he's not wrong that China is a bad actor internationally. Uh, economically, Trump is and a uh, trouble. Yeah, let's say a tr- yeah, they're trouble. It, it's a very let me change that editorial comment from bad to trouble. They're, they're trouble mm-hmm. on, on on these economic issues. And if the Democratic potential Democratic nominee does not convince people that he's going to he or she or she or he's going to have the wherewithal to stand up to him, that's going to be a damaging. That's going to be damaging on the Democratic side. On that, because I worked for Bloomberg News for eight years and later six years for the opinion page. Uh, I have a lot of respect, uh, really a lot of respect for Mike Bloomberg. The two things he has that Donald Trump doesn't have, and that's values and integrity. Uh, when I worked <laughs> and at Bloomberg intelligence. News, right, that's, yeah, there's okay. actually a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, right. Bloomberg News had the highest ethical and integrity standards. And the one exception, this was after I left the news department, was on the opinion pages, was when the news editors killed the story about a top Chinese leader, Zhao Jingping, uh, and his personal financial situation. The two top editors resigned. The reporter who earlier worked for me was outstanding, left under pressure, now works the New York Times. Th- that story, it was said, would have imperiled Bloomberg's growing presence in China. And it was the only time I ever saw them gave. And I think there's two problems here. One is, as you said, Michael's statements about China uh, are just not in keeping with where the people are and maybe even uh, certainly where, where democratic opinion is. But secondly, if he should get the nomination, I think he'd be a good president. I think it's a stretch to get him to the nomination. He's going to have to sell the company. Uh, there's no way in the world he could ever, because he doesn't have Donald, you know, fortunately, he's not a Donald Trump. There's no way in the world he could be president and put anything in a blind trust because you know exactly where it is. And uh, so if he gets there, he's going to have to sell it. And you know something, he'll get a pretty penny for it, James. Yeah, you know, he's uh, that campaign is just glowing, right? I, I, you know, I, people. I mean, they're they're very, very, very active. They just opened an office in the American Virgin Islands, and they are meeting with a lot of people. I mean, that, that Michael Bloomberg is not a half-assed person, remotely. 
And, I mean, they're in this, and they're in this because they think they see a path. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think I can see the path, but I don't have any doubt that, that they think there's a path. He is not someone that's going on, on a fool's errand. Well, I mean, from, from our vantage point, from, a, from the from people who are writing about this and covering this and podcasting about this, uh, the idea of a Milwaukee convention with Michael Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders each coming in with 20% of the vote or whatever number you want to pick uh, and being the power brokers there, man, that'll be a great story. Yeah, I, 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 I am so, so afraid of Milwaukee. I, 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 you know, I hope it works out. It, it, it almost always does. Not always. I've never been a big believer in this broken convention theory. However, when I see people like Bernie and Bloomberg, and even Biden, that people have got like real staying power, that they're not going to knock out as early as, as as some of the other people will. Particularly, and I Biden runs fourth in Iowa, and New Hampshire. I don't know. I don't know how to figure they get to South Carolina, but <clears throat> you know, there, there's some people that got some resources here to go very long into this race. Well, I, my fear would be that uh, it goes back to 1968 and Tip O'Neill, then Congressman before he was Speaker. Uh, came to a meeting with a Democratic uh, delegation from Massachusetts, and he thought it looked more like the cast of hair uh, than the uh, Democrats. And I just uh, uh, have a fear that Milwaukee may end up looking like that. Let's hope yeah. not. Brody, if you don't think that the Russians are all involved in left-wing American politics, then you're really stupid. I mean, you're, you're really, really stupid. I mean, you're going to tell me that Jill Stein, sitting at the table with Vladimir Putin and Mike Flynn, I mean, this is on. the one case. This is the one case where I can plead not stupid. Uh, yeah, I know, but, but I mean, but 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 you, we know what the ideas we got to tell people. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, and they need to start investigating the connections between Russia and American left. Yep. Um, we should talk about that a lot. Yeah, and, and so we should. Um, and we, boy, we got a lot ahead. Uh, just it's only a month away to the Iowa caucuses. James, the year is 2020, but whatever the year is, there's no one that knows numbers better than Christy Numbers Harvey, uh, who's with us again. Christy, welcome. What do you have for us? Hey, fellas. Happy New Year. I've got a couple of numbers for you today, although I have to tell you, I almost just started with how many numbers I've spent or how many hours I've spent napping and uh, just relaxing. I have done nothing for the last week, but I've got two numbers for you today. You ready? Yep. Okay. My first number is 67. Uh, that's the number of votes that we're going to need to convict Donald Trump in the Senate. And so as my post as the resident in-house bookie, uh, I'm taking bets. How many senators do you think will actually vote to convict, remembering that the Senate has that 53-37 breakdown? Hunt, do you want to start? I'd say 49. Uh, they're going to lose one uh, Democrat and pick up uh, three Republicans. Uh, and I'm not very confident of that uh, bet, but go ahead, James. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, th- I think the relevant number right now is how many Republicans they get on the procedural vote as to how to set the trial up. Because that's going to get, they're going to have to take two votes. I think they're going to have to take the vote on the procedures of which Murkowski and Collins have, you know, what, what, what does it mean? 
But there's some, if the, and the Democrats just need to keep bringing home, they want a fair trial, a fair trial, a fair trial. Uh, so I, I think that first vote is going to be critical. And, you know, if they get four, that's a lot because you, you, you changed the way the trial's conducted. I, you know, I want to slightly disagree because I think, I think actually you can see what's going to happen there. They're going to have witnesses. They have to have witnesses. There are going to be enough Republicans that are going to insist on it. But I think what they're going to do is have control, a uh, controlled list of witnesses, and they're not going to get some of the ones they really want to get. Uh, and uh, they got to vote on it anyway. But they do. But I'm still yeah. waiting for James's number on the number to convict Christie. I think that I think the more critical number is the, the the way the trial is set up. If and if they get because the evidence, I mean, look, we know what happened. That's really not debate. And if they're able to make that very clear during the debate, they might get more than otherwise. I I think to some extent, not they're not going to get more than six. But the difference between getting two and six is a lot. Two and six Republicans. Yes, yes, but it's a lot. But but the the it, it the, you know depending on how they get the vote as to you know if they limit the witnesses or they limit this you know they, they you know they have to do some thing. But if if some Republicans insist that you have a real open trial, if four of them do, then they they could get jammed and lose more people. I, I think the first vote. I can't tell you what is going to happen on the second vote that we see the first one. How quickly do you guys think this is going to move? Is this something that moves really quickly and, and we start to see this stuff in January? Or do you think this drags out? Well, let's see when Pelosi sends it over. Yeah. You know. You know, i got to believe here, and Albert, I ask you this. You're much more the impeachment person than I am. I think they know more information is in the pipeline. And it's a little bit, why hurry? It's just only good things are going to happen. The only thing that we're going to find out if we wait another week or we wait another two weeks is there's going to be more confirmation of this or other acts of criminality that come in. So they're not, I don't think she's in necessarily a big hurry to, to, to shove this immediately. I, I agree totally. And I think it's been totally misinterpreted. I read all these pieces that, you know, Pelosi has no leverage over McConnell. McConnell says, fine. I, I, I don't believe that. I believe McConnell wants to get this out of the way as quickly as possible. Oh, does he? Uh, and I, I think what Pelosi uh, I'm, I'm sure she would like to have uh, ground rules for a fair trial and all that, but I don't think she'd mind Donald Trump giving his State of the Union address on February the fourth when impeachment uh, is still on the table. Yeah, I don't either. And and, and, and I, the other thing is, you Mitch McConnell. We, we don't let someone get confused. He has one job, and that's to protect his incumbents. He, he that that that's what they, that's why he's there. That's his singular job. And they're coming into him right now and saying, Mitch, you know, I don't think I want to vote on this. I, 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 I think the politics of this are not great for a, a limited number. Isn't that not the politics? is not complicated for John Kennedy. I understand that. But, but, but there are some people who, who this is complicated for, and they would like to extricate themselves without much damage politically. And that's going to be a tough trick for Mitch to do. No question. I just got back from a week in Colorado, and I'll tell you one guy who's sweating a lot is Cory Gardner. Uh, this, yeah. is, this is a lose-lose for him right now. Right. I mean, if, they, if there's any way to make this thing go away, or which, of course, is not, they, you know, and this procedural vote is not going to be easy. Oh, and it's no. not going to be easy for him to craft a solution that looks fair but is not. No. That's what he'll try to do. But, but yeah, it's going to be a – all right, Christy, you got anything else for us? 
Yeah, I got one more quick one. Um, so in keeping with my bookie status, and I want to be very careful here. I want to tread very lightly because James, as you may know, my family is a Clemson family. My sister went to Clemson. We've got tiger paws all over the house. All right. So uh, my second, the great school, by the way. My second number here is six, and uh, that's uh, the the six point favor. LSU is favored six points over Clemson on the thirteenth. Uh, how do you think this is going to shake out? And remember, my mom's listening. Okay, I look. First of all, you cannot stop the the line open at three. I think it might be five and a half now. You you cannot take the betters away from LSU. The, the, the number of times that I've seen our line jump two, three points is, is a ton. And the reason is, is because it's Pavlovian. If if you bet and you win, you're going to bet again the same way. Mm-hmm. Clemson has not lost in two years. They beat Alabama last year like Alabama wasn't on the field. And I don't care if Alabama's Alabama. They were still Alabama this year as they showed against Michigan. So I, I'm so excited to be there. Look, I, I – I, I, I like this team so much. I don't have any objectivity. Uh, your mom, your family, the people really love Clemson. It's a great academic institution. There's a lot of history. We know somebody that wears purple is going to win. We know somebody named the Tigers is going to win. We know somebody <laughs> that plays the home games in Death Valley is going to win. Uh, you know, of course, more than anything in the world for, for this whole team and this whole university, I, I, I hope it's us. But, man, what a ride. And, and I think Clemson – can feel really good. I mean, they've had a, a ride under Dabo Sweeney, unlike most any time in college football. So oh, this is the most anticipated football, college football game of the 21st century. Let's enjoy it. Man, man, Christy, that's the, that's the second time today that that he's he's ducked the question. I mean, it really is it's, it's remarkable for us. What about ducking? What question what, am I ducking? The question six. What do you know? You know, over under. I, I, yeah, I'm so excited about this. I, I, I bet on LSU just because experience tells you that. But experience tells you you bet on Clemson, you do well. I, I, I don't, I, I'm too excited about the game. I don't need to bet it. I, I got so much emotional capital invested in this. I don't, shit, if, who cares if I win $500, lose $500? I mean, this is the biggest athletic night of my life. Christy, Christy, this is like, you know, I'm like Harry Truman. You know, I'm sick of these. You know, I want a one-armed economist. On the one hand, on the other hand, I mean, I, listen, I watched I said, Georgia I would, game. I, would bet I watched LSU. LSU against Georgia, and I tell you something. I think Clemson's a great program. My dear friend Harry Frampton is deeply involved with a trustee down there. They've had a wonderful record. That was a great coach. LSU two touchdowns. All right. Well, I'm in Delaware for the next couple of days. Yeah, but if nobody wants you to be right more than me, <laughs> nobody wants you to be right more than me. Okay. James, for a very quick back page, I think we both want to pay tribute to a guy named Bob Greenstein, who has run the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities for the last 30 years and announced he's going to step down a year from now. He is one of those invaluable figures. Uh, in America. He is a liberal by traditional standards, even though some of the lefties today can't stand him. And he spent his entire career fighting for poor people and people who, you know, championing food stamps, championing tax credits for uh, working families, the earned income tax credits, and looking at the the harm that uh, some of the policies of the right wing would have on people who really uh, are struggling. 
And he's not been, he's also been willing to take on uh, liberals and laborers on things like the Cadillac tax and the healthcare plan. He's a guy of complete integrity of, you know, just so of such great commitment. Washington's a much better place, James, because of Bob Greenstein. Uh, he is in, in a column written by another very decent uh, Washingtonian, E.J. Dion, on Bob Greenspan, it would be highly recommended to anyone. And, and there's not many people that at the end of their career can say a lot of people are alive and a lot of people are not hungry because of things I did. Bob Greenspan can say that. And I'm not talking about a lot like in the thousands or the hundreds of thousands. I'm talking about in the tens of millions, right? I mean, his life and the impact, you know, Jackie Robinson said the only extent that a life matters is to how it affects other lives. Bob Greenspan is probably affected more lives in a positive way than any Washington lobbyist in history. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree. He is, uh, he's one of a kind. Uh, I was going to say we'll miss him, but he's still going to be around. But uh, Bob Greenstein, you're our, you're our New Year uh, person of, of, of the week, uh, easily. Uh, all right, James, uh, we'll talk next week. Okay. Okay, that was our back page. Great guest with Michael McDonald and fascinating conversations about what's going to happen with the Democrats. Thank you for listening. I'm ask you to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. Happy New Year again.